Hey folks, welcome to the Whitetail Guru Hunting Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Unger, and this is episode 39. And today we are visited by Gino D'Angelo from the University of Georgia uh, Warnell School of Forestry. He is an assistant professor in deer ecology and is an advisor over an ongoing research project in the North Georgia mountains. And we talked to him today about the different populations and just how they are being affected um, for many different reasons, including habitat, predators, and hunters are the three that we specifically dive into. And he he talks about each of those individually and maybe how they are affecting um, deer as a whole. But um, I'm going to let him kind of dive into what he's doing uh, more in depth as far as um, kind of his background as well. Uh, we had one of his colleagues on um, in the past, and I do mention that in the interview, so you guys can go check out that episode as well. Um, but before we get started, I just wanted to tell you about ButcherBox. Right now, if you um, sign up for ButcherBox, you will get uh, a package of free scallops and bacon. That's hard to beat. So you guys can go over to our show notes um, for this podcast or really any podcast episode that we've done. Or you can go to our website at whitetailguruhunting.com and go down on the sidebar and click one of the pictures there. But um, thank you guys so much for um, taking time to listen today. Uh, We really appreciate it. But without further ado, let's dive into our interview with Gino. All right, on the line with me now, I have Gino D'Angelo. Um, he is a professor at the University of Georgia in the School of Forestry. Um, I'm going to let him give you uh, his professional title. But Gino, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on the podcast and just um, talk about whitetails and some of the research you guys are doing. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on, Nathan. Talking about deer um, is my passion. So whether we're talking about hunting or research, it's all good for me. Absolutely. And I think a lot of our audience is going to really um, enjoy some of the findings that you guys are working on because a lot of them are um, hunting in some of the areas that you guys are researching, or if they aren't personally, they might know a few folks who are. So um, I I think it definitely hits home for a lot of us. And it's very uh, just practical, especially with the season right around the corner. So if you would, if you don't mind, just go ahead and um, tell the audience um, a little bit about yourself. And um, then we can dive into specifically what you guys are doing. Absolutely. So again, my name is Gino D'Angelo. I'm an assistant professor of deer ecology and management at the Warnell School here at University of Georgia. A little bit about myself. I hail from Pennsylvania, grew up in a hunting family, uh, blue collar background. We traveled to deer camp in northern Pennsylvania on the New York border. And so deer have just been a passion of mine forever. Went to Penn State University. I lived and worked at their Deer Research Center. And then I actually came to University of Georgia for my graduate studies. Left and, um, and worked in Pennsylvania on overabundant whitetail deer for five years with U.S. Department of Agriculture. And then I was the Deer Research Project Leader at Minnesota Department of Natural Resources before coming back to Georgia. 
I'm a public land hunter. I love to deer hunt with um, primitive weapons, muzzleloaders, flintlocks, rifles. So deer hunting is close to home, both in my personal and professional life. And as a public land deer hunter myself, noticing what DNR, Georgia DNR, was seeing with deer populations in North Georgia was a stark realization that we had to do something about deer populations up there. So my first research project that I started coming back to Georgia in 2016 involves our work on the Chattahoochee National Forest in, in North Georgia. So this is the mountains, the Appalachian region of Georgia. Um, what DNR noticed was deer uh, harvest declining since 1979, down about 80% for bucks across eight huge wildlife management areas. So it wasn't just this local hotspot issue, but a very big issue in North Georgia. For sure. And if people are listening to this right now and they're like, hey, I think we've like talked about this before that's because we have and if people go back to episode 15 we um you just you told me before we started recording that you were the advisor over several different um i guess there would be graduate students per, uh, doing research in this area and that was with um we had cheyenne yates on an episode and she kind of gave us the lowdown as to what was happening kind of in the in year one i for you know for lack of better um terminology and for that timeline but now that you guys um, I guess are maybe finishing year two um, or still in year two. Uh, we're going to kind of see maybe what, what has come up since then, maybe some of the similarities, maybe some things that you guys are finding out. And so that's one thing that we definitely want to touch on, especially with deer season being, you know, really um, in the near future and uh, Georgia regulations have come out and a lot of people um, have seen that, um, a lot of the area is buck only, um, if not all of it, for um, large portions of the state. But um, before we dive into that, can you just give us a really high-level overview of um, specifically what you guys are doing, and then we'll kind of start narrowing it down and um, in regards to those WMAs in North Georgia? Absolutely, yeah. So the way we work in, in wildlife research, we're a, a land-grant university, so I co-direct the UGA Deer Lab with Dr. Carl Miller, and so we bring in students. We, we recruit the best students from across the country. You mentioned one, Cheyenne Yates, who had a ton of experience capturing deer in Wisconsin. We also brought in Adam Edge, who worked on multiple deer projects, including in, in Kentucky as well as in Missouri. And then finally, Jackie Rosenberger, who comes from my home state of Pennsylvania. And so we attack these issues from a variety of, of ways. And one of our first things to do is, is collar animals and learn more about their movement, survival, etc. We're also going to touch on uh, surveying hunters to learn their preferences for how they want management to occur on these areas. And also, we look very in-depth at fawn survival. And so from a broad perspective, we're looking at all these different aspects, including habitat, the wildlife themselves, and the people element. Um, these WMAs that we're talking about, wildlife management areas in North Georgia, there were eight of them um, that are within the Chattahoochee National Forest. As I said earlier, we saw declining deer populations, very stark declines. 
but at the same time we saw increases in the body condition of deer indicating that probably at lower densities deer were making a pretty good living they were finding the resources they needed but these populations were still really low and so Georgia DNR made an appropriate response they reduced opportunities to harvest antlerless deer so adult does in particular on these areas and harvest of adult does and antlerless deer went down 97 percent over the last couple years or since 1979 but over the last couple years almost zero harvest of antlerless deer we would expect because deer populations respond really quickly to to management actions like that we'd expect them to start to increase we didn't see that we still saw depressed deer populations so in collaboration with georgia dnr we started this research project these wildlife management areas are on Chattahoochee National Forest. The National Forest is managed by the U.S. Forest Service. So they have control over controlled burning, timber harvest, etc. DNR sets the hunting regulations. They have limited capacity to change what that habitat's like on the National Forest. They're able to conduct food plot management and that's about it. Otherwise, all they can do is change hunting seasons. So in that context, Knowing that deer populations are low, deer are in good condition, but still we're not seeing them respond to reductions in harvest, that points to limitations in recruiting fawns into the population. Why do fawns not, why are they not recruited into the population? Well, they die, and we want to learn what sources of mortality are affecting fawns, and so that's where our, our study comes in. I can tell you how we capture deer, whatever level of detail you want, Nathan. No, that's good. That's, there's a lot to unpack there. So um, just kind of starting at the beginning, what you said, is there, off the top of your head, do you know um, what kind of um, population numbers we're looking at as far as um, how many deer per square mile? Do you have a, a guesstimate by chance? Yeah, DNR's got some numbers. We're getting some indications based on harvest as well as our capture. We're talking about very low deer densities, around 5 to 10 deer per square mile. So if you're talking about 5 to 10 deer per square mile, you're talking about only you know, at most three or four adult does to help keep that population where it is or, or grow it. And most adult does are having on average one and a quarter, one and a half fawns um, per year. And so if you put harvest, then on top of that, you can see why populations can be slow to grow if you don't have a lot of adult does out there in the landscape, that reproductive part of the population. Right, exactly. That, that <laughs> those are some staggering numbers right there. So, um, which, how far west across the state are you guys going? Are you all doing um, east to west as far as WMAs, or is there a, a divider WMA um, in North Georgia that you guys are stopping at right now? Does that question make sense? Well. We yeah, absolutely. We, we saw these trends, these reductions in deer harvest indicative of lower populations across all eight WMAs on Chattahoochee. And so we narrowed in, um, you know, just logistically speaking, where could we put staff? Where could they access? Where was their housing, et cetera? And where were their WMAs that were representative of these trends? And we settled on Blue Ridge WMA and Cooper's Creek WMA, which are in the central sort of eastern part of um of chattahoochee and dnr this year by the way um eliminated antlerless harvest of deer west or east of i-75 so these wmas are included in that right. in that area yep 
Yep, that's exactly right. I was actually reading that yesterday. So, um, and is that only on the WMAs? Does that also include the National Forest land outside of the WMAs as far as the um, the antlerless harvest? Do you know off the top of your head? Oh, yeah, it includes the entire okay. Chattahoochee National Forest. The thing about that is there are inholdings and there are private lands within the National Forest, which are, are exempt from that. And I should say that Blue Ridge and Cooper's Creek that we're working on, they total about 50,000 acres. They're really big. And in between them, there are private lands that we um, inherently work on because our deer that we collar are traversing both the public and private lands. So if they move on to those private lands, we're able to track them with our G G GPS collars and go in and find their fawns as well. So we're working in this context of both public and private lands, which as you might imagine, differ quite a bit in their habitats. For sure, and I definitely want to dive into that. Um, how are you guys capturing these deer the terrain in north georgia um you know varies quite a bit so how are you guys uh being successful in capturing these deer yeah this is some of the the toughest landscape you'd want to find to capture deer in you know normally but now when we're talking about low deer densities you can you could imagine why we brought in some of the best students that we can find that already had plenty of experience jumping on deer and putting collars on them and so what we do is we start after hunting season. We don't want to disrupt hunting, of course. And we begin to pre-bait deer primarily on food plots and openings. And we use whole kernel corn. We found that works pretty well to attract deer. And then we set up rocket nets. Rocket nets, um, if you've never seen them, I suggest you, you Google rocket nets and check out what that looks like. In fact, on our, our Deer Lab website, you can see one in action. It's a huge net, about 40 by 60 feet, and we accordion style fold it up along the edge of a food plot with the bait just about five feet in front of the net. And attached to that net are four rockets, and these rockets have howitzer propellant in them. We run a, uh, a line to a charger in a blind, and we watch with infrared scopes for animals, for deer to come to that bait site. And then just like when they're doing an implosion of a building, we push that plunger and those rockets take off, pulling the net over top of those deer. And then that's when primarily graduate students, we don't want professors to get hurt, right? They run out and tackle that animal safely to the ground. And then another personnel comes in and injects that animal with immobilizing drugs so that for the safety of everyone, we've calmed that animal down. We're able to remove it from the net and go ahead and work it up, which would include for adult does, we put a GPS collar on them and we can set that GPS collar to give locations of that animal anywhere from every 10 minutes to every couple of hours. And on these adult does, we also implant a vaginal implant transmitter. And it's a, um, it's kind of like, a, it looks like a cow magnet, if any of you are familiar with that, a little cylinder with an antenna and we insert it into her birth canal so that when she gives birth, that placenta pushes the VIT, the vaginal implant transmitter, out, and it sends us an email if it's working properly. We're also able to monitor it using radio telemetry. So we know where that birth site is, and so in June, July, when she gives birth, we can go in, 
find her fawns and put collars on those fawns and track their survival and habitat use as well. So our team over the last two years, they, they've actually captured almost 100 deer, but they've had to sort through those deer to get those adult does and they've captured 36 adult does that we've implanted with these transmitters and put GPS collars on. Awesome. That, yeah, that's great. I think uh, when I talked to Cheyenne, I think you guys at the time were, um, it was either that you had put uh, 10 collars on fawns or the, the, the number was around 10. And so that's um, that's definitely uh, cool to hear that, that increased number because, you know, that obviously helps for you guys. Yeah, and things are so tough up there that we've had to diversify our methods a little bit. Rocket nets are kind of our go-to. They're safe. We can catch multiple deer. We've also used some tranquilizer darts. We've used drop nets so the animals walk under a net. It's like kind of like a circus tent. We drop that net on top of them. And we've also used what are called clover traps. It's a big box trap. Like if any of you have captured rabbits in your garden, it's a big trap for deer. And we go in, tackle that animal, and use sedatives as well. So we've used a variety of techniques, different settings, different baits to be as successful as possible. Right. So I think um, one thing that people are probably asking themselves is why why is the population the way that it is? Like why aren't does able to, um, you know, just, you know, support more fawns, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's, um, you know, two to three parts to this. But I think if you could speak to maybe habitat first, you said you mentioned earlier that um, the habitat varied quite a bit. But I think also the lack of habitat has had an effect as well. But could you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. What we've seen up there, historical trends before European settlement, we would have seen regular fire occurrence. So we would have seen lightning strikes, you know, other causes of fires, including Native Americans, would have occurred every two to 14 years, according to the records we see in the rings of trees where we would see charring. We know that timber production, Chattahoochee National Forest was utilized very much for timber production through the 1990s. That tailed off significantly and almost stopped entirely by the early 2000s. And so what we're left with today is these mature forest conditions. The good news is that many of those forests are hardwoods which produce acorns, an important source of food for white-tailed deer and other species in that region. But when we're talking about mostly mature forest, only about 1% of the Chattahoochee National Forest is less than 10 years old. So that means we have these big towering trees, very little undergrowth because sunlight, there's a lack of sunlight reaching the forest floor. Think about what you see in clear cuts or even on power line right-of-ways. You see blackberries, American beautyberry, pokeberry, all these herbaceous plants, forbs, high-protein plants, soft-mast that animals, especially deer, can utilize. But not only deer, coyotes, bears are utilizing those other resources. So when those resources are limited, you could imagine that there's competition among deer even with wild turkeys, bears, pigs, to eat those acorns that are remaining. And so we've got mature forest conditions, very little understory, which means poor hiding cover for deer, both adult deer and young deer, poor soft mass, and then this limited drop of acorns, which can be boom or bust from year to year. So we've got these, these kind of cathedral-like forests that provide little 
little habitat for most animals. Right, exactly, and you know that that has to do. Um, it's a major major player in fawn recruitment as well because of predation, and so that was kind of going to be my next um, factor that I wanted to talk about because I remember um, that back in April you you spoke at the uh, QDMA Whitetail Weekend, and predation was a uh, a good chunk of your present presentation. So, um, can you kind of talk about um, predation in? North Georgia, um, Southern Appalachians in general, and how that is also affecting um, some of y'all's research as well. Well, in this system, we've got what I like to call the American Trilogy, including American black bears, coyotes, and bobcats. Of course, you know, bears are, are have been in North Georgia forever, and all these species have been on the landscape for some time. Bears were, were highly sought after as a game species. Bears have done quite well. In, in fact, um, based on a recent study out of UGA, um, one of my partners, Andy Little, was the lead author on that. We found that uh, the black bears are increasing about 7% per year in North Georgia. We don't have good numbers on coyotes. We know they came on the scene in about the 1990s, um, at least, as they did throughout much of the southeast, but they're doing very well. We get them on trail camera quite regularly and bobcats are quite abundant in this area as well and so when fawns are born in that region it's june july it's a concentrated drop of fawns these fawns are on the ground and available to these predators as i mentioned the habitat doesn't leave much in terms of soft mass or habitat for young uh, small mammals that those those species would also eat and so there's likely a move by predators to capitalize on these little protein packages known as fawns during that concentrated fawn drop and so wherever we see predators throughout the country, they do pretty well um, depredating fawns. Across the country, in fact, there's a great study out of Pennsylvania. Tess Gingery was the lead author on it, and she did what we call meta-analysis. She looked at a bunch of research throughout the nation and found that about 40% of fawns survive. And so if you think about it, most fawns are programmed to die in some manner. They hit the ground. They're utilized by predators. Some succumb to natural mortality, including heart defects, as we've seen in our study, abandonment by their mothers. Some are mowed up in hay fields, but most fawns die, so about 40% across the country. Of those mortalities, though, predation is the greatest cause of mortality, not just in North Georgia, but in most studies. And so in our area, where we have bears, bobcats, and coyotes, all are depredating fawns. During our first year of the study, so how, how do we study this, by the way, Nathan? We, we put collars on fawns, as I said. We, we've got VITs and mom. We go in and find those fawns. We opportunistically look for fawns. So we go out scanning at night with infrared scopes, look for them, get collars on them, and study their survival. So we track them, go in. When we hear a mortality signal, we go and investigate that mortality look at the sign at the site of that mortality. So what are the bite marks if there's a fawn carcass there? We swab the carcass and the collar for DNA and send that off to a laboratory to find out what DNA, what predators were involved in that kill. And so what we see is in our study, I mentioned that meta-analysis from across the country looked at about 40% predation. 
or 40% survival. In our study area across the last two years, we're looking at about 24% survival. So 24% versus 40% in most of the country. That's a good indication that we're not recruiting as many funds as a lot of populations. As far as predation goes, about 80% of the funds that died the first year were caused by predators. And during this year, so far, we've seen about 60% of, um, of fawns that have died were caused by uh, predation. We're seeing coyotes, bears, and bobcats all killing fawns, but coyotes and bears are kind of at the top of the list right now. We're still waiting on some of our laboratory results back, but that's, that's our preliminary findings is that predation is about on the scale of other studies, but overall survival is lower than, than we see in most populations. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. So are you guys finding, um, and I don't know if there's a way to tell this, but with, with bears, are they, cause typically from the people that I've talked to, bears are more opportunistic. Um, but are you guys finding that now just with, um, all these trends are, are bears seeking out some of these fawns a little bit more now, or is, is there a way to, to really know that? Well, it's, it's tough for us to know that. We don't have bears collared in this area. But what I can tell you, and I talked a little bit about this at the Whitetail Weekend, in study areas where we can watch bears and their hunting techniques, it's not that they just they stumble upon fawns or caribou calves or elk calves or moose calves. They actively hunt for them. And I'm not trying to vilify them. I mean, they're a predator. That's what they do. They're out looking for food. But... Once they get an indication that fawns are on the ground, how do they know that? Well, you know, a birth causes a lot of fluid to be, um, you know, exerted into the environment. They smell that. They can track up these fawns, and they're able to find them. And it's not that they stumble upon them. They're likely looking for them. And so the good news for fawns is that they're pretty precocious, meaning that at about 10 days of life, they can run like the Dickens and they can avoid most, most predators. But when you get poor habitat, packs of coyotes, things of that nature, we can still see predation up to 30 or 90 days. And so some of those factors come in as well. But bears are definitely taking their fair share in North Georgia, um, but also the other predators are quite responsible as well. So. It's no different than we see throughout the country. Predators are doing what they do. Um, it's just that the fawns in this system might be at a disadvantage relative to habitat. Right. And um, this is a shot in the dark, but because you brought it up, you mentioned um, caribou calves and bears hunting those calves. Um, that was a, a project um, that would you be able to talk about that because that was also something you talked about at the whitetail weekend that i found interesting but is there a way that you might be able to tell the listeners as well yeah so i mean in 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 some of these studies like caribou in newfoundland we saw a drastic decline so in newfoundland they had about uh, something along the lines i can't remember off the top of my head a hundred thousand caribou in the 1990s 
So, you know, essentially an island with pretty good counts from aerial counts, 100,000 1990s. Uh, fast forward to today, we're talking about somewhere in the 25 to 30,000 range. So a drastic decline, similar to what we're talking about in North Georgia relative to white-tailed deer. And so researchers have studied these caribou intensely. If you, and for those of you that don't know what a caribou is, think reindeer, same species. Um, often referred to as reindeer. So big animals, we're talking about cows that are, you know, 600 pounds in some instances. So big old cows, big old calves, but out on open tundra usually. And black bears and coyotes are uh, pretty prolific on Newfoundland, but found at low densities. But they have open terrain to hunt on. And what they found, these researchers in Newfoundland, was that more than 50% of calves die, so kind of similar to white-tailed deer, and predation accounts for about 90% of the deaths. They did a study with bear behavior, and forgive me if I can't remember the details, but what they found, they tracked several dozen bears, and almost like 90% of the bears moved their locations to the calving grounds when calves started to hit the ground. They became visitors to calving grounds. And the big male, the boars, were more likely to capitalize on those calving grounds. They probably pushed other bears off. And they spent something like two to two to four times um, the amount of time on those calving grounds versus other areas so pretty indicative that they were going to eat those calves um, and caribou are a little bit different because they go to a more concentrated area to have calves versus white-tailed deer where that doe isolates herself from other deer to have those fawns in seclusion so that's another advantage of whitetails. They're not just in this one area like a cafeteria where bears can come and find them. They have to search across the landscape. But we've seen these bears be active predators, and, and this caribou study is a good example of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I know I put you on the spot, but I do remember you. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> Hopefully I, I, was, I was accurate there, I hope. Well, and people get the idea that um, those bears showed up at – you know, that specific time of year. Um, but I found that super interesting when you talked about it. And, you know, I, to, to some extent, the same idea um, is applying. Uh, what, you know, like you said, our whitetails aren't out on the tundra and they're not in herds of, you know, hundreds of thousands. But um, the, the bears are still clearly seeking them out from what you guys are, or, you know, from what. Um, we understand. So what about, talk about coyotes. So um, how are coyotes playing a role in this? I know in previous podcasts, we've talked about how, you know, if you're in your deer stand, you shoot a coyote, you're not really doing much. These transient coyotes are going to come back in and fill those voids. But what are you guys finding? Well, you know, we're, again, we're not collaring coyotes here, but some of my colleagues study coyotes really intensely. And what we see is the, you know, the term that we use is coyotes are ubiquitous. They're found everywhere and they're at pretty high densities. In fact, I've got a study right now in South Carolina, along with South Carolina DNR um, and the U.S. Forest Service. My graduate student is looking at coyote abundance across South Carolina and DNR is looking to adjust deer regulations relative to coyote abundance. So that's just an indication of how important coyotes are. We see that since coyotes kind of came on the scene, we're seeing lower survival rates for fawns. And, and 
coyotes can be the biggest player in terms of fawn survival right now like i said our results are kind of preliminary it looks like bears and coyotes are kind of sharing the upper echelons of, of predation on fawns in our area but um the good news with coyotes versus say gray wolves or red wolves that we had across the southeast um, in earlier times is the coyotes by and large don't kill adult deer they certainly kill some they certainly get an advantage sometimes on a wounded deer or if coyotes are packed up but they don't impact high tolls on the survival of adult does in fact none of our adult does that we've got collared in north georgia have succumbed to predation even when they're vulnerable having fawns and so coyotes are in that mix of predation for fawns um, and we see them quite regularly. We don't have good numbers on coyotes or have information about their movements in North Georgia right now. Okay, cool. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, to, to be able to track all, all the predators and, and the adult does and the, the fawns, I'm sure would be just a monumentous task. But um, I'm just curious to see, like, you know, what you guys are running, running into up in uh, the WMAs. So um, that kind of brings me to kind of the third factor that I, you know, have kind of conceptualized in my mind. And that's, that's us as hunters. So did you guys have any... Um, adult does or you know even for that matter fawns that you guys had collared um did any of those were they taken by hunters did you run into that at all this past season we only had one instance of a harvest of uh one of our adult does and you know the the thing of it is is that opportunities for does were were significantly reduced even before our study started because of the trends in deer populations but an archer last year on blue ridge took one of our does and he kindly he called my office phone because there's a number on the collar explained to me you know his harvest and we sent him a package he sent the collar back and was extremely cooperative we don't discourage legal harvest of our marked deer, but now with the the total cessation of antlerless harvest on these WMAs, um, and we don't see poaching up there, by the way, of our, our collared deer, we expect that this is the best chance, given current conditions, without habitat improvement, etc., that this population, these populations have to at least maintain themselves. And, you know, I want to get back to one, one other point, Nathan, you talked about, you know, clearly we can't, we can't follow all these critters on the landscape, but we are using an innovative technique to, to keep tabs on, um, you know, not just deer, but also the predators. We formulated a grid of 64 cameras, so infrared trail cameras like you'd use, like a lot of us hunters use to, to track deer, but we've got them um, in in a pattern across the landscape at a density high enough to look at what we call occupancy of different species. So do they occur within this cell? Um, and how does that occurrence of these species change over time? So we're just trying to photograph animals on game trails. We're not baiting them or anything. And so we're able to collect photographs of deer, coyotes, bears, feral pigs, and we're also looking at the amount of mast or acorns in those cells to see how if cells have greater amounts of acorns across the fall, 
do we see more bears, say, and feral pigs in those camera cells, and are they pushing deer, displacing deer from those preferred feeding sites? So that's one other way we're trying to get to it. So I think we'll get some inferences about how deer and these other species relate. In terms of coyote management, you know, study after study has shown, including it in South Carolina, intensive coyote removal. There are so many across the landscape that those transients or adjacent individuals just fill in the holes and still, you know, command territories and they're able to, to you know, eat deer fawns just the same. So shooting a coyote here and there um, probably is not going to be effective. Right. And, you know, that's what that's what I figured. Um, but, you know, just to kind of wrap that wrap that up again. So um, so I guess from a hunter's perspective, are you guys I guess, how can we help? In other words, what what is something that hunters can do if they spot a collared uh, doe in the field? Is it something where you would want people to, to call you guys and say, hey, this is where it was at? Or would that would that just not be, you know, an accurate enough assessment as to where exactly that deer was that it would be any help to you guys? Well, they're certainly welcome to call. I enjoy talking to people about deer, but the reality is, is that we've got GPS collars on these deer, so we know where they're at. We have had some, some help from hunters and, and local landowners that have private land in the area. We've captured deer on their properties. They've called us when they've seen fawns so that we could go ahead and capture those deer and, um, and collar them. But the best way that hunters can get involved is to actually show up to be an engaged stakeholder because, as I said earlier, the U.S. Forest Service has management authority of these lands. They own these lands. And so when the Forest Service proposes timber management, we need hunters out there or they're going to write management plans as they just did for the foothills region of the Chattahoochee National Forest. We need hunters to show up and say, hey, we've got a vested interest in these natural resources. Timber harvest would certainly help these populations by putting more early successional, so young growth habitat on the landscape. But what happens, and I'm going to generalize here, and I've been to these meetings to listen, to speak up, when the Forest Service or even DNR has a meeting about management of these lands or these populations, hunters don't come out in mass. Who comes out in mass is environmental rights groups who I believe are well-intentioned, but they want to stop timber harvest on these lands. Timber harvest has been going on for hundreds of years on the Chattahoochee National Forest. And before that, Native Americans, natural events, fire opened up these canopies and allowed some growth on the ground. But each time the Forest Service proposes timber harvest, it gets shut down and minimized, sometimes totally stopped, because of environmental rights groups complaining about forests being cut. Management, active management of forests is an important part of wildlife conservation. We concentrate on wildlife, habitats, and the people component of these of these systems and the habitat piece is really suffering here some good news though the US Forest Service recently has proposed to remove the requirement for public involvement in timber sales less than 4200 acres now that that sound bite may not sound good but the reality is is that we haven't been able to harvest 
virtually anything across this broad landscape, which is almost 2,000 square miles of forest. And there's a lot of forest there that's overmature, poorly stocked, you know, and could use some timber harvest to improve its its state. And so hopefully the Forest Service will be able to cut some trees. But when they have an event, when they have a meeting, when they're asking for public discourse, hunters should get engaged. Yep, you're you're exactly right. Do you know where people can go to find out more about these meetings? Is it the Forest Service that is releasing the information to these, the DNR? Who is making these meetings available? Yeah, both. Um, I'm on the listservs, and as a as a private, you know, citizen on the listservs for the Forest Service, I encourage you to go to the Forest Service website. Um, for Chattahoochee National Forest, and you can get on email list to get alerts for when these meetings occur, when there are decisions to be made, and you can weigh in on public comment. Likewise, I'm on a listserv for Georgia DNR, and so I get updates about um, changes even in shooting ranges or habitat action or changes in regulations. It's just good information to get. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a good point, and whoever's listening needs to, you know, take – very practical steps to do that because that's one one very easy way that we as hunters can get involved so um, i would definitely encourage people to do that and if we can um, find that listserv you're talking about we'll post it in our show notes and link it as well now what about other forms of management what about like prescribed fires is that um also minimal because of just access and logging roads and uh you know just things of that nature well, some prescribed burning goes on. You know, I say some, but on the scale of thousands of acres. But it's really a drop in the bucket compared to this this big landscape that we're talking about. And prescribed fire alone, you can burn the understory or the leaf litter, expose mineral soils. But if those mineral soils don't receive sunlight, you're not going to have regeneration of those forests or you're not going to have understory growth so opening the canopy removing those big mature trees at some level is what's going to help and as i said dnr plants really nice food plots they provide a lot of access for hunters um, but those food plots don't make up for bust years of acorns they don't make up for lack of you know brambles etc that the deer are consuming um in a lot of other areas right yep that's a good point that's a good point and like you said i mean even food plots are not um they're they're a drop in the bucket you know which whichever way you look at it so um so yeah one one easy takeaway is to just allow your voice to be heard so that's uh that's a, a key point there so um what about okay let me let me ask you this you guys you said that there's a possibility that this research project could be extended what are some of your goals that you guys are aiming towards um in the next i guess couple of years well so we want to wrap up as much information as we can about this population in terms of their vital rate. So what is survival? What's recruitment into the population? And that could feed into a population model. And so we can look at different scenarios. If this population is subjected to different management, how might it grow or decrease under those scenarios? And those scenarios then, the, the output from that that essentially modeling exercise could tell us what policy should be in place. Can we support 
any antlerless harvest? Can we support harvesting any adult does in this population? Because we don't want to see um, opportunities for hunters restricted unduly. If if there's some opportunity to increase populations and still have some more recreation in terms of harvesting does, that should be possible. But I, that's part of it. We want to look at um, habitat use of these deer. How are they using private versus public lands? What timber stands are important to them? Of course, Nathan, the, the piece that we're missing here is what would it look like if timber harvest did occur? And maybe in the future or part of this research down the road, different phase we might be able to look at how deer utilize those areas but currently we just don't have a diversity of habitat that um, that we can look at different use of other parts um, one thing i didn't get to talk about is that we also radio or we instrumented hunters um, my graduate student jackie rosenberger worked closely with hunters that checked in to, to blue ridge and cooper's creek gave them GPS units, and we tracked hunter movements then relative to our collared does to look at how deer and hunters interact. Because if we're not harvesting does, but we're still interacting enough with them that we're displacing them from preferred areas, we could have some effects on them. Are hunters accessing, you know, interior areas? Can we improve access? Do we need to reduce access back in the days when we used to have refuges to give deer a break? So that's another component that we're going to be wrapping up is looking at how hunters and deer move on that same landscape. We've also sent surveys to 1,200 hunters um, to learn about their perceptions of management on these WMAs, all eight WMAs, by the way and what are their motivations for hunting in the mountains and how satisfied are they and we do what's called an importance performance analysis i don't want to get too jargony here but essentially what's important to hunters and how well is dnr doing to deliver those those management actions that are important to hunters and in that way we can look at what are our priorities given the current state Given how many hunters we have there, how can we make their experiences as best as possible? Hopefully, habitat management will improve in the future, and then we can compare what we know right now to how deer relate to those new habitat features, how hunter satisfaction, how hunter movements change relative to those different um, habitat features in the future. And what do I mean by habitat features? Imagine new growth, you know, a 640-acre clear cut and some people connotate clear cut with bad management action but a clear cut pretty soon results in a flush of growth and a lot of food and cover for wildlife and so hopefully we see that in the future and we can compare it to this baseline study that we're doing right now how does fawn survival increase so where can we drive these populations given different management and different habitat yeah that's that's good and so that actually uh, i want to kind of go back to one thing you mentioned did you guys or you said you're still wrapping it up were you guys able to see um data that showed how hunting pressure related to some of these adult does we saw a little bit but with too preliminary to say right now um jackie's had quite a load on her she's analyzed the hunter surveys that we received back and we appreciate hunters returning those surveys to us 
we found what was important, how we might improve management for them. But she's going to continue her hunter movements piece this fall. So I encourage hunters on those WMAs, in particular Blue Ridge and Cooper's Creek, to work with Jackie and allow us to give you a GPS unit. What we see um, is that hunters do travel from the roads. You could imagine that, you know, as with other studies of this sort, hunters don't go many, many miles from the road by and large. But um, there are areas that receive more pressure than others, but it's too preliminary right sure, now to say. Sure, yeah, I imagine so. So, um, but that that's a neat feature. I'd be curious when that uh, when you guys are able to summarize all that, what that'll be like, because uh, you know, I mean, all hunters want to see how you know hunting pressure is dictated by by you know just. Um, uh, the number of hunters, but also the frequency of hunters entering into a same the same space. So, um, and what uh, gates are open? What what habitats there? You know, are hunters concentrating around food plots? As a hunter, I'm interested in some of that information too. Where can I find those pockets <laughs> where nobody else is hunting? Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, I, so I have um, pretty much one more question before we start wrapping things up. Are you guys looking at so? At this point, you guys have uh, basically yearling, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys have some yearlings that are collared from last year, and you have some, you will have some um, fawns that will be collared this year if they haven't already been collared. Um, are you guys looking at those differently in any way, or are you kind of still lumping them together since they are within the first year and a half or so of their life? Yeah, you, you, you've identified a pocket in our research, in any research project. These collars that we use on fawns, they're expandable collars, and we are lucky to get them to 12 months of age. So, well, part of the reason we don't have a lot of yearlings on the landscape is because we had such high mortality of our fawns last year. We have a few that are still active, and so we're able to look at a few being recruited into the population, but that's not really a thrust of our research because these collars tend to fail or are dropped off the funds at eight to 12 months. And so we kind of miss that, that advancement into the population. We, we really stake our claim on zero to six months because we know the collars should be viable for that long. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. In fact, I think, uh, Cheyenne had mentioned, um, something about that time period too. So, um, well, cool. So I want to, um, before we, we let you go, cause I know we're coming up on time. Well, I guess, um, before I transition, is there anything else that you would tell the audience that we haven't touched on? I appreciate you bringing this to light, Nathan. I mean, I, I know I can, and some of my students say that I rant a little bit, and I do because I'm just so excited about this research, and I feel like we as hunters really need to step up, and me as a public land hunter and a deer researcher really thinks that we need to be in the limelight as hunters and say, hey, this is an important conservation matter that we're talking about. These deer populations provide tons of recreation, they're a keystone species, they drive economies by hunters visiting these areas, and so it's important. Um, so I appreciate you bringing it to light. I appreciate hunters and local landowners working with us on this research, and I appreciate Georgia DNR who find it to be a very important management question that they fund it and they're collaborating. So the scientists like Charlie Kilmaster and Tina Johansson at Georgia DNR 
are research collaborators with us. They are part of the research team. So your DNR is very well invested in this kind of research. And I just wanted to highlight yeah, very that. Very much so. And uh, we've had Charlie on the on a podcast episode before, and so people can go check that out as well. Um, and he definitely shares a lot of the same values because he's a hunter himself, you know. So, um, exactly. All right. So, real quick, I want to transition over to Gino the Hunter now. Um, <laughs> I just want to ask you a few quick questions. And um, we like to call it our Whitetail Rally Round. But um, what is your favorite way to um, eat or prepare venison? Well, my favorite way to eat it is something that mama d back in pennsylvania makes it's called brujol and i don't i couldn't spell it for you but what she does is um especially like tenderloins are ideal hammers it out you know with the with the meat hammer back of a knife um and coats that that thinned out venison with some garlic you know that's a very important component of an italian meal uh onion pepper salt parmesan cheese parsley and rolls it up and my mom would use generally sewing you know sewing uh what is it thread if you will what she'd sew my pants with throw it in the spaghetti pot you know so cook it in sauce for like 12 hours and it comes out you cut that that thread off and it falls apart and the pepper really pops that's i just still love it that way i i can't really replicate it, but I try. Really good. <laughs> uh, this is one of the favorite parts about the interview. I like to do so um, get all kinds <laughs> of good things. All right, uh, what is your um, your favorite hunting resource? Whether it be a magazine, YouTube channel, book, whatever the case may be. What, what do you go to? Oh, it's your podcast, right? Um, <laughs> okay, thanks. I appreciate that. I, I don't want to, you know, be the crusty old hunter, but. I, I like to interact with other hunters. In fact, I'll be at a traditional archery, archery event this weekend. I like to learn from other hunters. I learned a ton from my dad, my brother, my uncles. Um, and I try to learn from people, hunt in different scenarios, force myself to go out with people that I can learn from. Beyond that, I, my daughter would tell you that daddy really doesn't enjoy YouTube. <laughs> I've been watching a bit because I've taken up, I started with traditional archery as a kid. Now I've returned to it. And so I'm trying to figure out, you know, what's the best way to learn how to, how to shoot in that manner. So I utilize YouTube because seeing is believing. And I, I like publications. My favorite publications uh, being both online resources and quality whitetails from the Quality Deer Management Association. There you go. That's a good one um, for sure. All right. And then uh, last but not least, what is a bucket list hunt that you would like to go on? Well, um, I don't want to be too sappy again. It's just going home uh, to Pennsylvania, the mountains. We have just – 30 some acres back home uh, in Bradford County, Pennsylvania, but we have access to a 450 acre dairy farm. I don't get to go back much, but if I could spend, you know, two weeks hunting back there uh, with everybody again, that would be ideal. That's cool. Well, very cool. Well, Gino, thank you so much for taking time out of your afternoon to come on here and just um, tell us all about the research that you guys are doing. If people want to learn more, um, either about uh, you or about um, Warnell School of Forestry, where can they go? Yeah, they should definitely go to ugadeerresearch.org. You can just Google UGA Deer Lab and you can you can find out more about us. 
Um, we're always looking for new students here at the Warnell School. Our wildlife um, major is the biggest of the school, even though it's a, a forestry and natural resources school. Wildlife um, is, a, is a big component, and we need people with interest like ours that that want to promote conservation in particular consumptive uses wildlife management and so anyhow i could go on about warnell forever it's very close to my heart but um, we've got a great program here so ugadeerresearch.org and check us out sounds good well i appreciate it gino thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me all right, folks, another episode in the books, um, and that is number 39. We are one more closer to 40. Hey, look at that. So um, hope you guys are doing well. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, if you find it interesting or helpful, please share it with your friends. I know um, several people who hunt in the region that they're studying, and I myself am going to hunt that area this year. And so uh, I'm definitely um, kind of looking forward to being uh, boots on the ground, more or less. So uh, but you guys uh, definitely uh, take time to share that with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. Also, if you haven't yet left us a rating or a review on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate that. Um, that really helps us out a lot. And, um, of course, head over to our social media. We just recently posted a gear review on YouTube. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Whitetail Guru Hunting. So hope you guys are gearing up for the season. Good luck and good hunting.